we welcome you with praise this morning. We acknowledge that uh, you're the God that we need. You're the God that we see with beauty and wonder. And Lord, when we think about the fact that you made us, and yet we turn from you, we ran from you, we have tried to live our lives without you, and yet in your love, in your kindness, you sent your Son to come and rescue us. Lord, we can't help but pour our heart out to you in praise, to lift you up, to acknowledge that there is no one like you. There is nothing like you. God, that our lives were meant to revolve around you. And so we humbly this morning come to your word and, Lord, ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would reveal who you are to us, and also that you would reveal who we are to ourselves, that you would show us the reality of life as it's meant to be lived, that you would show us the wonder of what it means to be your children, to be your church. God, we want to hear from you. We submit our hearts low to the ground before you. God, meet us in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Many times the story that we hear when a company goes out of business is that they fell behind because they failed to innovate. Times changed, but they didn't, uh, and so they got left behind. But there's another, another reason that businesses fail. Uh, sometimes the reason that a business fails isn't because they weren't willing to innovate, but it's because they actually lose the heart and soul of, of what they really are. Uh, maybe it's as generation one passes on to generation two, the, the values and commitments and core identity and purpose of what the business was even created for doesn't get passed on from generation one to generation two. And in the lapse from generation one to generation two, the company loses its identity and then fails to be what it was created to be. I mean, can you imagine if tomorrow morning you woke up and there was an announcement that Chick-fil-A was no longer serving chicken? Could you even call it Chick-fil-A anymore? Or could you imagine if tomorrow you found out that Home Depot was going to start serving cheeseburgers instead of wooden nails? Would it be Home Depot? No, we would have to change the name to Food Depot. Right? Sometimes there's something so intrinsic to the very identity of what something is that if it is lost, it can no longer be that which it was created to be. Well, for too long, people have looked at the church and thought that the reason the church was suffering is because the church wasn't willing to innovate. But that is, in fact, not the story of the church. While the rest of the world, while in the rest of the world, the church surges forward with growth and health, here in the West, The church suffers, not because we weren't willing to innovate, 
but because we have lost our very soul. The reason that companies feel the need to innovate is because, you know, as time passes, things change. But here's the problem with the church constantly feeling the need to innovate. The church is from eternity, and the church will last forever. And that means there are things which make us who we are, that if we were to leave them aside we would be setting aside that which is timeless. If we were to set certain core things aside and drift away, we would lose the very purpose for which we were, were created. Uh, we started last week a series through the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to see this morning as Jesus opens up the Sermon on the Mount to us is he's going to show us what the very heart of the church is. And Jesus knows better than anyone else that what this world needs is not for the church to constantly innovate, but for the church to be consistently devoted to Jesus. He's going to show us both the tragedy, the utter tragedy of what happens when God's people float away from their purpose. But this is the amazing thing. Jesus is also going to show us the glory of the privilege of what it would look like for us to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. And so here's the question we're asking today. Here's the big question we're asking. What does it mean for the church to be the church? What is so intrinsically tied into the life of the church that it is what gives it its beauty and what gives it its purpose? So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to pick, right where, pick up right where we left off last week. Uh, last week we started this series in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. And today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So what does it mean for the church to be the church? What does it mean for the church to be the church? First, we know God as Father. We know God as Father. What we're going to do this morning, we're actually going to start down in verse 16, and then we're going to work our way back up, and then we're going to work our way all the way back down through the passage. So let me read verse 16 one more time. Verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we want to know the most distinguishing 
characteristic of the church. We want to know what makes the church what it is more than anything else. It is this, that the church is the family of God. The church knows God as Father. Uh, by a quick count, uh, through, the, through the whole Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus uses the word Father 17 times. And we might think, oh, well, that's obvious. You know, Jesus is God's son. He's been God's son from eternity. So, of course, uh, he will call, call God his father. But here's what we see. Only one time out of the 17 times does Jesus say, my father. Every other time, Jesus says, your father. And then in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, our father. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? As we continue through this series over the next few months, what is the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is the teaching from Jesus about how we live with God as our Father. The teaching from Jesus about how we live with God as our Father. Uh, See, many people believe that everybody is a child of God by default. That just for simply being born, that just makes us uh, one of God's kids. But that's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all of us, we've actually turned away from God. We've actually tried to live our lives without Him. We've sinned against Him, and that means we have forfeited His fellowship, His care, His discipline, and the honor of being His children. So far from being natural-born children of God, this is what the Bible actually says in Ephesians 2.3. The Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath. And so having turned away from God our Father, trying to live life without God, what we experience is a life of isolation, a life of loneliness, a life of anxiety where we are the ones who have to look out for ourselves. We live a life where we have to strive and strive and strive to get what we want And to make a name for ourselves. And that is why J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, writes this. Adoption, he says, is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. He goes on to say, Packer goes on to say, Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us, and so we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. But, Packer continues, contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family in fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Uh, I read an illustration of this one time in a book. 
I just want you to imagine for a second that you have been accused of a crime. And you're brought in the courtroom and you have to stand before the judge. And then as the judge delivers his sentence, he says, You are not guilty. You are acquitted of all the accusations against you. You know, just imagine how you would feel in that moment as the relief just rushes over you. That is justification. But then imagine that something else happens, something that's probably never happened in the history of the world. That the judge then goes further and says, now also, not only are you not guilty, but I've noticed that throughout this trial, your name has been smeared through the mud. That everybody in your life has abandoned you, even your whole family. They've abandoned you. They wrote you off. And so because you are this person who has been smeared through the mud and cast off by everyone in the world, I am adopting you into my family. You get to come over to my house for dinner now. Everything that I have is yours. You get to take my family name, and I am writing you into my will to receive the same inheritance that I'm going to give my kids. That is the picture of adoption. That yes, guys, it's marvelous that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Yes, it's marvelous that Jesus died for our sins so that the wrath of God would no longer be condemning us. But here is the highest blessing of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that we might know God as Father. In a sense, as we continue through this Sermon on the Mount, the simple question we're, we're asking then is, how do we live our lives if because of what Jesus has done for us, we now know God as Father. How do we live if God to us is no longer a condemning judge, but a welcoming dad? And this, as we'll see time and time again, changes everything. So why do we start here this morning? Well, we started here this morning because we are in a minute going to talk a lot about what the church is supposed to do, what we as God's people are supposed to do. But what we do in the Christian life always flows out of who we are. What we're called to, to do as the church always flows out of our identity. That you and I, if we are in a second, we're going to talk about if we are the salt of the earth, if as Jesus calls here, if we are the light of the world, it's only because we are the children of God. It's only because God the Father has placed his stamp of family resemblance upon us that we can be the salt of the earth, that we can be the light of the world. We can only be the church if we first and foremost know God as our Father. So when we come to rest in the reality that God is our Father, it solves so many of our problems. God is our Father, then we can stop living like we are fatherless. We can stop feeling the need to strive and strive and strive to make something out of our lives, to make a name for ourselves. If God is our Father, then it means He desires closeness to us. Here's the amazing thing. There's nothing that we could do to make Him love us any more, and there is nothing we could do to make Him love us any less. We are welcome 
like a child runs into the lap of their parent. We are welcome into the intimate, close fellowship of God, our Father. And you may be here this morning and you just know, like you sense right now that you don't know God as Father. Well, the, the Bible tells us that the way into God's family is through Jesus Christ. Here is a snapshot. Here's a, here's a, a very simple snapshot of what happens in the gospel. Here's Jesus. He is the actual one true son. He is the one who did live the perfect life. He is the one who did everything his father asked him to do. And yet, out of love for us, Jesus was treated as an outcast. Jesus was treated on the cross as a disobedient, guilty sinner so that orphans like us could be brought into the family of God. And so if you long to know God as your father, what it takes is for you to place your trust in Jesus, the one who was willing to be cast out so that you and I might be brought in. And as we're going to see this morning, everything else flows out from this. And so second, if the church is the family of God, then we are the salt of the earth. Uh, Verse 17 says, you are the salt of the earth. Now let me pause here for a second. There is only one way in which the English language, especially the English language as it is exhibited in the southern United States, is more sophisticated than the Greek that this New Testament was written in. There's only one way, and it is this, that we have this wonderful word called y'all. This you here is a plural you. All throughout these verses this morning, every time you see the word you, you should hear y'all. Y'all, Jesus says, together are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Uh, There's a lot of different ideas about what exactly Jesus means by this salt image. But, hey, let's just simply start with the, the one that Jesus actually mentions, which is taste. Jesus is saying those who have become the children of God, they have a unique flavor to their lives. They are distinct. They have a uniqueness. And that's why Jesus immediately adds after this, saying, Y'all, you are the salt of the earth, but, he says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? His point is, is to say that there are certain things which make the church what it is. There are certain things that make the children of God what they are. There is a unique and distinct flavor, a unique and distinct taste. And if those things are lost, if that unique and distinct flavor and taste is lost, then how could it be good for anything? How can we walk in our purpose? if we neglect the very things that make us who we are. I don't know if you've ever accidentally mixed up salt and sugar in a recipe. In a room this size, I am certain that it has happened before. You know, you just smother your steak in sugar. Or you just make that cake icing with salt. And, you know... Salt and sugar, they kind of look alike, right? They resemble one another. They've got the same granular kind of texture. They're both the same color, but they certainly cannot be swapped for one another. The taste is just too distinct. It's too clear. It's too obvious. 
And Jesus is trying to tell us this morning the uniqueness, the flavor, the taste that makes the child of God different. That is a good thing. That that is something to be enjoyed and embraced. That is the stamp of the Father's resemblance upon us. And there's a few things I want to highlight about what makes the church salty. What makes the child of God unique? Um, here's Here's a few things. First is this. Our saltiness is found in our beliefs. Our saltiness is found in our beliefs. A church is only a church if it believes that, that this Bible is the true Word of God. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, says this about the Bible. It says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So all the beliefs of the church must flow out from the Scriptures, and that means that for a church to be a church, a church must believe and must proclaim that there is one God who has eternally existed as three persons in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if a church is going to be a church... They have to believe that though human beings were created in the image of God, we've been helplessly lost and ruined by our sin in that we turned and rebelled against God. And for a church to be a church, it has to believe that out of God's great kindness, love, and mercy in response to our sin, He sent His Son Jesus to come down, take on flesh, live a perfect life, die a traitor's death, and be raised from the dead that we might have newness of life in Him. And if a church is going to be a church, it has to declare that the only way that anyone can receive life in Jesus Christ is to turn to God in repentance from their sin and place personal trust in Jesus Christ to be their Savior and their Lord. Is there more? Could I say more? Absolutely. Here's my point. The saltiness of the church is the distinctiveness of our beliefs is the distinctiveness that you won't hear this message anywhere else. This is unique. This is what gives us taste. This is what gives us flavor. And so if we were to move away from these things, if we were to jettison the very beliefs that make us what we are, we would cease to be the church. We might become a social club. We might become a humanitarian society. We might be a weekly pep rally for emotional fortitude. But we would cease to be the church. Uh, The second thing, our saltiness is found in our community life. Our saltiness is found in our community life. Jesus very clearly set out the saltiness of his church according to our community life together when he said this in John 13, 35. By this, Jesus says, all people will know that you are my disciples. So whatever he's about to say, he's about to say, whatever this thing is, this is how people will know that you're salt, that you have taste, that you have the flavor of my Father. He says, if you have love for one another. So just as serious as it would be, just as serious as it would be for a church to move away from the saltiness of our beliefs, would be to move away from the saltiness of our love for one another. And this is why we started at the beginning this morning talking about the fatherhood of God. That when God calls us into his family, 
we are also born again by his spirit. Here's what couldn't have happened in the illustration about the judge who invites the, the, the person to be a part of their family. When that judge adopts that person in their family, they, they really are in their family, but that judge can't reach down and change the DNA of that person. That judge can't reach down and actually change the nature of that person, but that is exactly what God does for us through Jesus Christ. Not only does he bring us into his family, but he actually transforms our nature. He changes our DNA so that now the way people will actually know that we belong to him, the way people can point at us and say, you must belong to Jesus, is when we love one another. And third, this morning, our saltiness is found in our worship. Our saltiness is found in our worship. A a church is only a church. If her primary purpose is to worship Jesus. In Colossians chapter 3, 3 and 4, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the saltiness of the church, that we as a collective group are a group of people who have come together and all of us collectively say, Jesus is our life. Not, not, not just that we receive life from him, not that we're just saying, oh, you know, he, he pours his life into us. No, 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 not, not like that. It's like the way that you and I say, my family is my life, or my job is my life, or my friends are my life. Paul's saying the church is the group of people who say, Jesus is our life. He is our all. He is our everything. What it means for the church to be the church is for its highest purpose to be to worship Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine for a second, you got this big tub of salt over here. It's this huge vat of salt, but the salt has lost its taste. You know, you could just lather it on your food, lather it on your, you know, steak and vegetables, just pour it on, and it wouldn't taste any saltier. No, no, no. What do you have if you have a big tub of salt that doesn't taste like salt? You just have a bunch of rocks. And Jesus is saying, what do you have if you have a church that is void of Christ himself, void of the doctrine of Christ, the teachings of Christ, void of the love of Christ, void of the worship of Christ, what do you have? You have a big waste of time. And we can't help but realize this morning, we can't help but think just a little bit about the context. Remember, Jesus is a Jew, right? He's an Israelite, and he's speaking to Jews, and we can't help but think as we hear Jesus talk about salt losing its taste, something that is supposed to be one thing, supposed to taste like something, supposed to be unique in a certain way, and yet it is no longer taste that way, and so therefore it is not good for anything. We can't help but remember that as Jesus describes the salt, he's describing Israel. He's saying, here's this group of people, and they had one purpose. They were created as God's people to shine a light to the nations. But how did Israel lose their taste? 
Here's how. Innovation. They saw it as their goal rather than to be distinct from the nations to become more and more and more and more like the surrounding nations. And as they began to take on their customs and as they began to live like they did, as they began to take on their gods, they moved further and further and further away from who God had called them to be. And so Israel has to be, has to be, a warning for us. Even here at Palmetto Shores Church, if we drift away from the things that make us salty, from the things that give us taste, from the things that make us distinct in what we believe about Jesus and how we treat each other because of Jesus and how we worship Jesus, if we move away from those things, then as Jesus says here, we become good for nothing. We lose the very purpose that we exist. And when we talk about the church as a salt to the earth, and we talk about this distinct uniqueness, what we have to see, what we're going to see next, is that that always has an outward face. That always has an outward public face. And so third this morning, what does it mean for the church to be the church? Jesus very clearly says that we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Uh, Pick up at the beginning of verse 14 there. Jesus says, you... Y'all are the light of the world. Now, here's the amazing thing about this. Here's the like, mind-blowing thing about this. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Huh. Now he's saying you are the light of the world. Well, I think John, the guy who wrote uh, the book of John, he helps us with this. In John chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle John writes this. He says, The true light, the true light, talking about Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so the only sense in which we are the light of the world, the only sense in which the church is the light of the world, is when the true light, who is Jesus Christ himself, is shining his light out through us. That this, in God's infinite wisdom that we will never understand, he chose... For the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to be spread throughout the world through his church. And in that sense, Jesus says, you, you are the light of the world. What a privilege. Just like we were orphans, lost, alone, trying to make it in this world on our own and we were adopted into the family, the Bible also says that we were darkness. Not that we were in darkness, not that we were surrounded by darkness. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says we were darkness. We were the problem. We were the dark blot. But what a privilege. He goes on to say, but in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, when our life gets dunked into his, we are transformed, and now we are light. You were darkness, but now you are light. Wow. 
doesn't want that? And so Jesus illustrates his point. Verse 14 continues. He says, you are the light of the world. And then he says, a city, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, Jesus saying, you know, a city in a valley might be overlooked. An underground city would certainly be missed. But a city on a hill, you just can't miss it. It's seen from all around, every direction. You can see the city that's up on a hill. So what does it mean for the church? Jesus is saying, hey, if, if your church is full of people who have been stamped with the family resemblance of God the Father, if your church is full of people who have been radically reborn by the Spirit of God, if your church is full of people who were darkness but now are light, they cannot be missed. You will be visible. And that means two things for us. When the, when the city is up on the hill, there will both be opposition. There will be those who say, I don't want that. But, 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 here's the glory. Here's the glory of the church. That there will also be people who will see the city on the hill and say, wow, I would love to be a part of that. And God will use us, us, guys, us, to bring people from death to life, to transfer people from darkness to light, to show people that they don't have to live as orphans and that they would be brought into the family of God through us. I'm sure most of us have driven down 17 in front of Broadway after daylight. Uh, coming from my house, kind of come over the 501 bridge, and then you just can't miss it. Flashing bright neon lights in the sky is this huge Ferris wheel, and it just flashes all night long. And here's what I know about some of the people that in this room. You probably look at that thing, and you think, how utterly tacky. You can't stand it. Why are we subjected to this all night long? There's probably some people who know people who can see that thing from their front porch, and they think, would they just turn that thing off? But I'll tell you why they keep that thing flashing. Because the three-year-old in my back seat is obsessed with it. And the millions of tourists who drive down 17 with their kids in the back, they become willing to go spend way too much money to ride around in a circle for 10 minutes. So here's the big flashing neon lights. Some people hate it, but some people love it. And Jesus is saying that is exactly what it means to be the church. That I am creating a community of light that is set up on a hill. And there will be some opposition. There will be some people who say, I don't want that here. But the great privilege we have is that there will also be some who will be transferred from death to life. There will be some who will be drawn in and they'll see the light, not of really the church, the light of Jesus himself. And it will be life to them. What an awesome responsibility. 
But then Jesus furthers the point when he continues with the illustration in verse 15. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Light a lamp, put it under a basket. But what do you do with the light? You put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Uh, Jesus wants us to consider how foolish it would be to light a lamp and then cover it up. What's the point of that? What a big waste of energy. Can you imagine what your power bill would be if you just literally went around and you turned every single light on in your house and you just left it on all the time? And then when you wanted it dark, instead of turning out the light, you just found some light covers to cover up your lights? Jesus is saying, how silly. The reason we turn the power on to a light is so that it would illumine things. Is so that the light would spread. And so he's saying, don't cover up the light. If you are the children of God, if you are the salt of the earth, if you are the light of the world, then don't try and diminish your distinctiveness. Don't go tinkering with the message. Don't try your absolute best to be just like the nations so that you end up actually dissolving yourself into them rather than calling them out into you. Jesus is saying, if, if I've lit you up, I've lit you up so that you can spread the light, not hide the light. But we have to be honest. All of us do at times put a basket over the light of Christ. And here's a few ways that we do that, sadly. First, I think the most obvious way is that we just keep silent about Jesus, right? We just never talk to anybody about Jesus. We're afraid. It's hard. We don't want to risk the relationship. And so we just don't bring it up. But unfortunately, what happens when we do that is we're actually doubting God's power. We're doubting God's power when we try to wait until it feels safe or until there's an open door or until we feel like we've gotten some interest you know, from them. We forget that we are told that the gospel... This news, this good news about Jesus is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And so in fear, sometimes we put a basket over it. Uh, another way that we put a basket over the light of Christ is with hypocrisy. You know, like we, we, we have to kind of get honest about this for a second. It's like in Jesus' wisdom, for whatever reason, he decided that his light, who, he as the true light, would choose to shine his light through us. And that's, that's a wonderful privilege, but it also is a, a sobering responsibility. That when anyone sees Jesus, gets a glimpse of Jesus, it comes through the outline of our lives. You know, we have this little toy at the house. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little flashlight thing. It kind of reminds me of those old projectors, you know, that had the, the picture slides that would kind of go around. And uh, you, you turn the flashlight on, and there's these little slides that we have in it, and you just pop, you pop it on, and it's like dinosaur, you know, up on the roof or whatever. You know, it's, it's awesome. Jesus is trying to help us see something. He's, he's trying to say, look, I am the light. Like, I'm the bulb. I'm the one that's producing this light. But the sense in which you are the light of the world is that you become the filter through which that light passes. So you become the outline in the sense of how people see Jesus and, you, and we can be saying all the right things. We can be checking all the right boxes in what we say to people. But if our life is running contrary to that, it darkens the picture. It muddies the picture. It fuzzies up the picture. And so what do we do? Well, certainly, certainly as the children of God, we pursue a life that reflects our Father. 
But maybe even deeper than that, we just get more comfortable with sharing our faults and sharing our sins, even with the people that we know need the Lord. That the way, maybe, maybe the way to cut through hypocrisy isn't to pretend like we've got it all together, but it's to start getting more honest about the ways in which we ourselves rely upon and need the grace of God. And then a third way that we uh, put the light of Christ under a basket, probably one of the saddest ways if we look at the history of the church, is through exclusion. A British, well, he wasn't British, but he pastored in London. We've probably mentioned him here before. pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote about this in the mid-1900s. Okay, so mid-1900s, and I believe, I think this is as, just as relevant now as it was then. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, the primary task of the church is to evangelize and to preach the gospel. Look at it like this. If the Christian church today spends most of her time in denouncing communism, it seems to me that the main result will be that communists will not be likely to listen to the preaching of the gospel. Let the individual play his part as a citizen and belong to any political party that he may choose. The church is not concerned as the church about these things. Our business is to preach the gospel and to bring this message of salvation to all. And thank God, communists can be converted and can be saved. Sin can be as terrible in a capitalist as it is in a communist. It can be as terrible in a rich man as it is in a poor man. It can manifest itself in all classes, in all types, and in all groups. He's saying it is an utter travesty when we place our personal preferences in a higher position of priority than our allegiance to Jesus. When we allow the differences that we have with other people in the world to become more important to us than Jesus himself, and so therefore it puts up a barrier from the gospel getting from the church to people who aren't like us, who are different from us. So I asked this morning, who, who, whether intentionally or unintentionally, have you excluded from the light of Christ because of the differences that you share with that person? Who, whether intentionally or unintentionally, have you put a cloud over the light of Jesus and His grace because you're nervous that they're not like you? Or maybe worse, you're nervous that they're a threat to society. And that we forget that the same grace of God that they need is the same grace of God which saved us from hell. Who have we cornered off because we think God could never save them? So, this is a privilege to be the light of the world. This is a privilege to be a city on a hill. But here's what I, I know. If you're anything like me, you might feel like a little beaten up right now. And this is why we started this morning. The overarching banner was 
God is our Father. Why? Because as our Father, (laughs) He is not ashamed of us. Really? He loves us. Even when we've blundered opportunities, even when we've walked in hypocrisy, even when we've prioritized the wrong things, He's our Father. And this is what this means. This morning, run back to Him. Run back to Him. Receive the washing of the grace of Jesus. Allow Him to reorient you again. And this is what He'll say. Go try again. And then repeat. This is such a privilege, guys. That we are the children of God and that He's chosen to shine the light of Christ through us, through us. Last this morning, we're back to verse 16. So we started there, we've worked back to the top, and now we're back. Verse 16, finally, what does it mean for the church to be the church? We live to glorify God. We live to glorify God. Verse 16, Jesus says in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, here's the interesting thing. In a couple weeks, in chapter 6, Jesus is very specifically going to tell us not to live our lives to be seen by others. He is very specifically going to tell us not to do the good things that we do, our righteous acts and things like this in prayer and fasting, to be seen by others. So what is the difference? Well, the difference is that this call that Jesus is making in Matthew 5.16 is not a call to draw attention to ourselves. This is a call to live our lives so sold out to God's glory that other people see that we are living for God's glory and that they would be drawn in to also live for God's glory. That's what this is a call to do. The church does have a public witness. She desires for the world, yes, to see our saltiness, yes, to see our light, but here's the difference. We aren't living to be seen. That's not the driving factor. We don't live and die for the pat on the back. But we do live in order that others might see God. Here's how this works. We all have different services that we get in our lives. And, uh, you know, people will give us a compliment, but, you know, they're not really giving us a compliment. Like, they're kind of giving us a compliment, but the, the compliment actually goes past us. You know, like, for example, when someone comes to my house and they say, wow, you have a nice yard here. And then the follow-up question is, Who cuts your grass? Because I know that you certainly do not cut your grass. What are they saying? They're kind of giving me a compliment, right? Your yard looks nice, but the compliment doesn't stop with me. It passes through me to who was the person responsible for this? Or when you've got that nice new haircut and you come around the corner and, and someone says, wow, I love your hair. It looks so great. Who does your hair? 
right? It's a compliment to you because you look nice, but they're, they're, the compliment is going through you, past you, to the person who's responsible. And Jesus is saying that is the call in the church. Yes, that we should do good works. Yes, that we are the salt and the light of the world. Yes, that we should be living in a sense that others would see something in us, but not in order to be seen, not that we would be drawing glory to ourselves. We are to live in such a way that the glory passes through us to God, that people might say, who is your God? Who is the power at work in your church? Who has formed you the way you are? Who ultimately deserves the glory for what I see? And so as we work through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount over the next few weeks, our deep prayer, our deep prayer is that we would learn together what it means to live with God as our Father. That is we learn more and more to embrace him as our father, that he would make us a community of light, that he would make us a city on a hill, that this would be a place that people would see and they'd want to know, who has done this? This is not like anything. This is not like my work. This is not like my school. This is not like my neighborhood. There is something unique here. And that we as a city on a hill might live not so that people would praise us. I, who cares if people ever remember Palmetto Shores Church, right? Who cares? But that people might be drawn out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life. That people might be drawn to know the joy of living with God as their Father and in joining us in glorifying God, who is our Father. That is our deep prayer. Let's pray. Lord, right now, first and foremost, I just ask that you would soften our hearts to you that we would see the wonder of your grace and love, that though we had run from you, though we had turned from you, though we try to live our lives better than your design, you came after us, you still invite us. And Lord, would you soften our hearts just to see your mercy, to see your grace, to see your love, and to say yes, and to run back, and to be restored by your grace. Lord, and then we're longing, we're desperate. We don't want to waste our time. We don't want to play games. We don't want to be a church that is useless, that is good for nothing. God, would you preserve us as the salt of the earth? Would you preserve us as the light of the world? Would you use our witness to draw many people out of darkness and into light, many people out of death and into light? Would you use us as we learn to live with you as our father to draw many orphans home into your family? Lord, only you can do this in us. But we're ready. We commit. Our hearts are open. And so we bow before you. In Jesus' name we pray.